morning, everyone. All right, so we're continuing our series through the book of Genesis, and we're in the last section of this book of beginnings, um, first book of the Bible, and the last section is from chapters 37 to 50, okay, which focuses on the life of Joseph, and I forgot, thank you, Russell, the children are dismissed. Um, so children ages four to kindergarten, I'll get it right, um, can head back, Janet, Paul and Sharon Brown um, can take your kids back to the room. If this is your first Sunday, if you're not sure where they're going to be heading, you can follow them back, and then you'll see where you can pick them up at the conclusion of the morning. So, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, so, chapters 37 to 50, the last section of the book of Genesis, focusing on the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. So that his father was renamed Israel and his 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, formed the 12 tribes of Israel. So we can see where this fits in the big picture storyline of the Old Testament. So Joseph was this favored son of Jacob, being the firstborn of his beloved wife. Um, and so as a teenager, Joseph had these dreams, two dreams. And the symbolism was pretty clear that his brothers were bowing down to him, and even his father and mother were bowing down to him. And the brothers didn't take too kindly to that. They were jealous of him, they hated him, and they wanted to kill him. So they actually conspired to kill him. One day, uh, they ended up selling him to some traders that were on their way to Egypt, and Joseph became a servant in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. After some time, Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph and tried to get him to sleep with her. He refused repeatedly, but one day there was nobody else around. She caught him, grabbed his garment, and he ended up just fleeing, left the garment in her hand. She ends up responding by lying, telling her husband that Joseph had come in to take advantage of her. And so Potiphar responded by throwing Joseph in prison obviously imprisoned unjustly. In prison, Joseph finds favor with the keeper of the prison. He puts Joseph in charge of the prisoners, which brings us to our section for this morning, chapters 40 to 41. So it's a long section. Obviously, we will read most of it, not all of it, um, but we are going to walk through the passage here, just noting a few things before we step back and consider what the text says about God, Joseph, and you and me. Okay, so the first point is from the pit to the palace, okay? We're going to walk through the passage, and then we're going to step back and see what the passage says about God, about Joseph, and about us. All right, so from the pit to the palace, or from being a prisoner to being the prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. So let's read through it together here. Genesis 40. Um, follow along here as I read. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the pew and you can find our passage on page 33. All right. So sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. 
captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. So in the ancient Near East, dreams were viewed as conduits of divine revelation. They took them very seriously. And in Egypt, it would have been normal for there to be people who were skilled, trained in reading dreams. The magicians and the the wise men or the wise people, okay? So they would have previously had access to these people, right? Because they were officers. I mean, you don't entrust your cup to just anyone. If you're Pharaoh, you could get poisoned pretty easily if the cupbearer is not on your side, if you can't trust him, okay? Which may have been why they were thrown in prison. Maybe there was some question as to whether or not there was um, something being planned against Pharaoh. So they previously had access to these magicians trained in the arts of dream interpretation, but now in prison they hadn't had that help. So what do they make of these dreams? They're, they're troubled. So Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head, and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. Did you notice he says when? <laughs> like, this is faith. He knows God's interpretation. He knows what's going to happen. When, not, not if, when it is well with you, remember me. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Just for what it's worth here, um, foodies were not invented you know, like in the last decade. Um, there's literally record of like 57 different kinds of breads in Egypt back then. So th this is actually kind of a, um, like a very realistic picture. <laughs> this all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh on my head. But then the picture gets a little ugly here. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed 
the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them because interpretations do belong to God. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Now, when you hear magicians, just make sure you know this is not pen and teller. Okay, this is not illusionists, right? These are pagan cultic leaders who would interpret omens and dreams and kind of like read the tea leaves or read the liver, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a great little comment in the ESV study Bible. It says, the fact that Joseph is very successful with dream interpretation because interpretations belong to God, back in chapter 40, verse 8, leads one to believe that Joseph is defeating the Egyptians on their own turf. So they were proud of their ability to read dreams, but they can't. And Joseph is going to read those dreams. So you'll see a few connections here if you're paying attention. These are like foreshadowings of the deliverance at the Exodus, right? Because the gods of Egypt are owned <laughs> by God um, in the Exodus as well, that deliverance. All right. So the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, verse 9, ah, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Second pit, right? His brothers put him in a pit. Now he's in this pit of the prison. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. It's interesting what happens in this story of Joseph with clothes, right? The coat of many colors, which is actually probably a coat with long sleeves that kind of indicates authority. And that gets stripped off of him by his brothers, right? And then he goes to Potiphar's house, and he rises again, and Potiphar's wife, you know, tries to, I mean, basically assaults him, but tries to, you know, tempt him, sleep with me, sleep with me, and finally she 
can't stand it anymore and basically kind of assaults him, leaves the, the robe, he leaves it behind. And so again, there's the stripping of the robe and he goes into the prison. And so here he's clothed and he's going to be clothed in fine linen before this thing is over. And here's the rise again. So the clothing is interesting kind of indicator of the rise and fall, the humiliation and exaltation of, of Joseph. So verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. Just picture that scene. We'll come back to this. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Literally, shalom. A peaceful answer. He'll bring peace to you. So verses 17 to 24, recount the dream. We'll pass on that. Look at the end of verse 24. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Again, he states the inability of the magicians and wise men because interpretations belong to God. Okay? Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Just like those cows were just as skinny as they were before they ate the fat cows, the plenty will be unknown. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. There's nothing you can do, Pharaoh. You're the most powerful man on the planet at the time, but you are subject to the hand of God. So, Pharaoh was viewed as a god in Egypt, but God is showing this lowercase g, God so-called, who the true God is. So God is the central acting figure in this story. He's the hero of this story and every story. Joseph tells Pharaoh what God is about to do and then tells Pharaoh what he should do in light of what God is about to do. So that's where he goes next, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint, proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, Pharaoh certainly didn't think all of the sudden that God was the only God. They had a multiplicity of gods. 
But this is really interesting. God is making his name great in Egypt, even through Pharaoh at this point. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. See, story comes full circle on the clothing put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt as basically prime minister. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, which probably means something like God speaks and lives. Fitting. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went, out and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until it ceased, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me to forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Manasseh means something like making to forget. The, second of, the name of the second he called Ephraim, which is something like twice fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. He doesn't call him Zaphonath Paneah. Hmm. Maybe this man and the God of this man is influencing Pharaoh here. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. All right, so pit to palace. That's point number one. Secondly, what do we see about God? What do we learn about God in this passage? So this is God's world. It's really clear. He is in charge. He's sovereign. He works his sovereign will. And this passage says it all over. So interpretations belong to God. The, the dreams came from God. The interpretations belong to God. We see that in chapter 40, verse 8, when Joseph says it to the cupbearer and the baker. We see it in Genesis 41, 16, when Joseph answers Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer. Now look at 41, 25 to 28. This is like a heavy concentration of 
God-centeredness here in this passage. Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of, of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I mean, do you see what Joseph is walking into the throne room of the most powerful man on the planet, and he's saying, God is in charge. God is in charge, and here's what he's going to do. Pharaoh is helpless. The most powerful man on the planet is helpless. Verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the doubling of the dream. The thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So, why is all of this stated? Because God is in sovereign control of history. It's not just the interpretations that belong to God. All of human history belong to God. God is actually orchestrating all of human history. That's why the dreams could be given, and that's why they will come true, and that's why Joseph could give the interpretation before it all comes about. So again, Pharaoh was considered a god. There's lots of gods in Egypt. But there is only one true God, and God is showing Pharaoh who the real God is. And he's going to do it again at the Exodus later, and he's done it many, 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 many times since in human history. So one of the ways that he shows his sovereignty relates to Egypt and the Nile. Okay? So they would have known this. We, we don't necessarily know this because we're not familiar with the ancient Near East, but the Nile is a source of life, the source of life for Egypt. So they were kind of drought-proof in a sense. Um, normally, they could survive a lot of, you know, leaner years that other areas really suffered because of the Nile. So um, the Nile would overflow its banks once per year, leaving a fertile area behind, silt behind, and so Pharaoh, when he has these dreams, can imagine that there's kind of an ominous foreboding going on here because it has to do with the Nile. The power of Egypt came from the, the fertility that was a result of the Nile. No Nile, no power. Their whole economy was built on the Nile. You realize that? So if God is predicting the failure of the Nile for seven years, God is in charge of the Nile. God is in charge of the economy in Egypt, God is in charge of the economy. God is in charge of every economy. God is in charge of our economy. God is in charge of the economy of every country on the planet. Okay, maybe some, you know, British believers need to be reminded of that in these crazy times with, you know, Brexit and all that stuff. Like, but we, we need to be reminded of these things because we can certainly act as if he's not in control. And we're really at the mercy of other market factors and whatever else. We can trust God who is sovereign over all of human history, every king, every regime, every kingdom, every economy. Daniel 2.21 says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God is front and center, central and sovereign and big and awesome in this passage and we should trust him. And Joseph does just that. And so he is a beautiful example to us. So there is a lot to see. I, I don't know if we'll be able to see it all here, 
But the next point is Joseph. We've got to see this man and admire him. We're supposed to admire him. So God made us to be shaped by and molded by those we admire, right? This is not just for little kids who look up to, you know, someone and imitate their mannerisms. It's all of us, which is why who gets our admiration is so important. So look at this admirable man first in verses 6 and 7. When Joseph came to them in the morning, the cupbearer and the baker, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody, why are your faces downcast today? Did that hit you? How remarkable that is? He is unjustly imprisoned and he's caring for others while he's there in chains. Like, didn't he have reason to be downcast? He is, you know, been totally given a raw deal. So it actually made me think of this book. It's called A Severe Mercy. I think Tyler actually quoted something from it a few months ago. Um, so Sheldon Von Aachen and his wife, Davy, um, C.S. Lewis was instrumental in leading them to Christ through letters, and then they ended up, you know, connecting at different times. And Davy got sick. They had, this, they had this sweet marriage, and they actually ended up kind of idolizing their marriage. Like, they were everything for each other. And Davy became a Christian. And Sheldon wanted to be a Christian, but he didn't like how Jesus was getting in between. You know, Jesus was being, becoming first for Davy as opposed to him being first, and it bothered him. So <clears throat> Davy actually gets really ill and ends up in the hospital. And so I only read this book one time, but this example has stuck with me ever since. Um, she gets ill, and she's in the hospital, and she never makes it out. But here's what it says about how she functioned in that hospital while she was dying. She obediently did everything the doctors and the nurses told her to do, everything except to stay in bed when someone else was in need. Over and over again, she was discovered out of bed in the night, sitting beside some other patient who was suffering, soothing her, holding her hand, praying for her. The doctor told me to persuade her to stay in bed, and Davy would look guilty and grin and promise. And then she would hear a sob or a cry in the night. Later, I was to get dozens of letters, some almost illiterate, from people who had been in hospital with her, saying that she had helped and sustained them. One said she was like an angel of God. This woman is suffering and dying, and she's serving other people. And Joseph is doing the same thing in prison when he is there unjustly. He doesn't deserve to be there. This is admirable. Oh, that God would give us grace to follow in his footsteps, Davy's footsteps. He doesn't get bitter and resentful and cynical. He's actually treating these king's prisoners like he would want to be treated, even though he hasn't been treated so well. So these trials have actually softened and seasoned him instead of hardening and jading and embittering him. How about you and me? Like, what does suffering do to us? What has it done to you? I mean, can't we, we're so spring-loaded for suffering to kind of, we, we can start to rage 
against the machine, right? Like we just kick against, we're just angry at the world, especially prolonged suffering. Or we can wallow in self-pity. Or we can blame our sinful response to suffering on our suffering. We can justify it. We can excuse it. Joseph doesn't give way to these things. God is teaching him that suffering doesn't have to embitter you. It can season and soften you to the suffering of others. Hey, what, why are your faces downcast? So had he given up and gotten bitter and cynical, he would not have interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker because he wouldn't have even asked them what was bothering them. So, again, 40 verse 8. We've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. That's remarkable. Just stop and think about this. They had dreams... He's offering to interpret them. What does that say? What what does that mean underneath? This man who had dreams from God that he would rule is in prison unjustly. What about my dreams? What about the dreams you gave me? Do you see? If, If he would have gotten bitter and jaded and thrown up his hands and whatever, he wouldn't have offered to interpret theirs. No, he's not cynical and jaded. He's not defeated and bitter. He is confident and faith-filled, even though those dreams are far from fulfilled and he has no idea how they're going to be. He's not licking his wounds in self-pity. He is caring for those around him. And he's saying, you know what? I'm God's representative. He'll give me the interpretation for you. (laughs) I mean, his faith could have so easily been choked by his circumstances. Beautiful. He also has a backbone of steel. I'm going to skip over some things here. There's, there's so much in here about his example, but he's got a backbone of steel. He is not about to go like this, put his finger to the wind to, you know, take matters into his own hands to get out of prison. Look at verse 15 of chapter 41. This is when he comes before Pharaoh. I've had a dream, Pharaoh says. No one to interpret it. Joseph says, it's not in me. (laughs) God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Like, he just walks in front of the most powerful man in the known world of the time, and he is calm and clear and even willing to correct Pharaoh. He doesn't pander to him. He doesn't fawn. There's no flattery. His future is hanging in the balance. After so much mistreatment, and he does not, like, stoop to those tools. He's not trying to make himself look good. He's honest. He's unafraid. He is, like, at peace, kind of unflappable. He's even advising Pharaoh before he's even heard Pharaoh's dreams or been prompted to be prime minister. <laughs> so it's, it's crazy. This is Beautiful example of faith and faithfulness. Joseph is also a picture of a biblical promise that is also true for us, not exactly in the same way it was for Joseph necessarily, but the humble will be exalted. The great reversal is coming. 
for every believer. Okay? We will reign with Christ, the Bible says. So Joseph's exaltation is a foreshadowing. He waited on the Lord. He was humiliated, but he trusted in the Lord. He waited on the Lord, and eventually the Lord exalted him. So we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, and he will lift us up in due time, in his timing. Ultimately, I mean, there's no promise of earthly exaltation, but we are sons and daughters of the king, and we are going to live and rule and reign with him forever if we're in Christ. So in due time, we'll be, we will be exalted, we'll be glorified. Well done, good and faithful servant, cosmically declared. Amazing honor and exaltation is coming. And Joseph's faithful waiting and the fulfillment of those promises is an early foreshadowing and pointer to the fact that it's coming for us as well. Wait for it. I think another thing here that's just beautiful is that God, Joseph's God-centeredness is almost like part of his spiritual autonomic nervous system. Like, it's just almost natural, the way that he responds here. Um, he, he just says, God may give favor, Pharaoh a favorable answer. Um, he, he just, God is forefront in his mind and heart and in his speech. It doesn't matter who he's standing in front of. He is bold and confident, and he is quick to point to God as the hero in the story, the centerpiece, and the sovereign. So, Despite all these exemplary qualities, don't think that Joseph was some spiritual superman who never experienced the pain of the suffering that he went through. Okay? Look at verse 50 of chapter 41. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, and he did not give them Egyptian names, so he did not get assimilated to become, you know, some polytheistic whatever he trusted the Lord, and he gave his sons Hebrew names. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In other words, up to this point, he hadn't forgot. But God made him to forget by blessing him in these ways and then giving him this son Manasseh. The second of the the sons was named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he calls it what it is. This is a window into Joseph's heart and mind. Even though he didn't lick his wounds and, and wallow in self-pity, it didn't mean that he was kind of stoic and, and, you know, some robot. He knew hardship and affliction, and he called it what it was. He never—this is amazing— we need to see this. He didn't blame or get angry with God, even though he said, God, like later on, he's going to say, God sent me here. It's not ultimately you. God sent me here. So he acknowledges the fact that God ordained his suffering and affliction, but he didn't get angry with God. These are deep lessons. This is, these are deep lessons that Joseph learned and so he is an admirable example for us, and we need to see him and follow him as he followed God. I mean, ultimately, Joseph is a shadow. He, he casts a shadow. He's a signpost. He's a, he's a pointer. 
right? Through Joseph, this righteous man, all of the world was blessed. Through his suffering and exaltation, all the world was blessed. And that's what God had promised Abraham. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then, chapter 39, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, uh, or last week, Joseph, um, God blessed Potiphar's house on account of Joseph. So that family was blessed because of him. And now, 4157, all the earth is blessed through Joseph. So do you see the pointer? You see how this thing is like a neon sign pointing to Jesus? He is the ultimate righteous sufferer through whom the world is blessed. He dies, he suffers in our place so that rather than being cursed for our sin is what we deserve, we can be blessed with reconciliation with God. And he's going to make disciples of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And we are blessed by Jesus to be a blessing to those around us, just like Joseph was. We are rescued from the domain of darkness by Jesus, who is the light of the world. And then he says, now you're the light of the world to bless the world with his grace and love. Which leads us to the last point, you and me. How do we, how do we apply this personally? Well, hopefully we've seen some pointers already in the example of Joseph. But one serious way to see what's going on here and apply it is the theme that gets unpacked later, say in Isaiah and elsewhere, waiting on the Lord. So I mentioned before, it would be so easy for Joseph to get bitter and resentful toward God. You know, you gave me these dreams and, I mean, for crying out loud, these guys were in prison three days. I tell them to get their dream. Three days later, the, the cupbearer's back in his position. I've been waiting for years. Like, where's, where's the fulfillment of my dream? He could have gotten that way. Is this what I get from God in return for my faithfulness? He could have gotten resentful, bitter, cynical, angry. No. And then the cupbearer forgets him. Two more years in prison. But listen, this is the way God works in our world, brothers and sisters. How long did Abraham and Sarah wait for the promised child? 25 years. How long did the Israelites wait in Egypt for deliverance? 400 years. How long, Barry's not here this morning, how long has Barry been waiting for the redemption of his body? Does that mean that the promises are no good? That they're not true? Does that mean that they're true for others, but not for me, not for you? No. God's fidelity to his promises have to be disconnected from our circumstantial suffering. We can't read the liver of our circumstances to determine if God loves us or not. He loves me. He loves me not. It's going well. He, lo he loves me. It's not going well. He loves me not. Oh, no. Is that true for Joseph? We have to read and trust his word and his promises and wait on him. 
Does God have purposes for the delays? Absolutely. And we can trust him as he works out those purposes in us and through us. Samuel Rutherford wrote this. He said, Providence has a thousand keys to open a thousand doors for the deliverance of his own when it has even come to a point beyond all hope. So God can do deliverance in a thousand ways to a thousand locked doors. Let us be faithful and care for our own part, which is to do and suffer for him and lay Christ's part on himself and leave it there. Duties of faith, trust me, wait for me, are ours. Events are the Lord's. So as we wait, we can take heart and trust that God is going to make good on his promises. He will exalt the humble. He promised. Matthew 23, 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you Casting, in the meantime, casting your, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Even in the pit, even in the waiting, he cares for you so you can cast your cares on him and wait. He will exalt you in due time. He did it for Hannah in the humiliation of her barrenness and Samuel was born. He did it for the lowly David. Saul's trying to kill him and pin him to a wall. He didn't take matters into his own hands and eventually kingship. Again, this doesn't mean that circumstantial earthly exaltation is guaranteed to us. Those are just pointers to the fact that all of God's promises he's going to make good on. We need to wait and trust him. Jesus was humiliated for us and exalted to the highest place, King of kings, Lord of lords. And as we follow him, humbling ourselves, taking up our cross like we sung, and following Jesus, we will one day be exalted. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, only honor and joy forever. So what about your dreams? What about your longings? What about your future? We don't say, is this what I get in return for my faithfulness? No, he is faithful. He is going to fulfill every promise. He hasn't forgotten about you. The cupbearer forgot Joseph, but God didn't forget Joseph, and he will not forget us. The only thing God forgets, quote unquote, is our sin. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Never hold him against you again. And then later in Isaiah, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He will not forget us. We can trust him and wait, and he will make good on every single promise. Let's pray.
Oh God, please help us see that you, you are speaking to us. You give us these words because you want us to trust you. You want us to know that you know, that you see us, that you love us, that you're with us, you're for us in Christ. I pray that you would speak personally to each person in this room, that they would know personally that you are for them, that you are with them, that you haven't forgotten them. And whatever suffering, hardship, affliction, trial they may be walking through, that you have not forgotten them. And in due time, as we wait on you and hope in you, you will make good on your promises. We can bank on it. Help us bank on it. In Jesus' name, amen.